All right, everything's going to be all right. I hope so. Anyway, good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's IAQ Radio. It's Friday, January 9th, 2015. This week is episode 351. We're coming to you from Studio D at the Central City World Headquarters of IAQ Training and IAQ Radio. Here with me in the studio is Frank Zappa Amato. He's my engineer. He's muted. We'll get him later. And... Calling in from Studio C is my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hello, everybody. Hi, Joe. Good day, Cliff. How, how was that music? Was it really loud? No, it was fine. Perfect. All right. It was just my own headset here. All right. Today's guest is going to be Dr. Richie Shoemaker. We're going to get right into things here. Before we get started, though, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at... John Don, J-O-N-D-O-N dot com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X dot com and C-M-M-Online dot com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, you can uh, download the show, go to iaqradio.com, and you can stream it live from there, or you can also go to the link that says go to show where you can download or stream, and also, of course, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Don't forget, we also have continuing education credits available. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And last but not least, please check out the IAQ Training Institute website. We've got the new 2015 schedule up there. All right, let's turn it over to to the Z-Man for today's IAQ trivia question. Tongue-tied here in 
standards and events. Their website is prsca.org. Now for today's trivia question. Name the term used to describe the complete set of genes or genetic material present in a cell or organism. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Today's guest is Dr. Richie Shoemaker. Richie Shoemaker, MD, has been involved in the field of medical evaluation and treatment of patients sickened by exposure to the interior environment of water-damaged buildings for 16 years now. He's been a guest on the show a few times. And most recently, though, it was almost three years ago. I was a little surprised to see that back on 210 of 2012. Check out episode 235 to get a little background. Um, hopefully most people have listened to that one because we're going to build on that today. He has diagnosed and treated over 7,000 patients. He's written and published multiple academic papers in peer-reviewed literature, as well as three books. The last was published in 2014 called State of the Art Answers to 500 Mold Questions. He lectures widely around the world and in the United States, and since his medical retirement in 2013, he has continued research into the basic genomics of brain inflammation effects of exposure. He also, through his website, survivingmold.com, has trained physicians to certify in his treatment protocols. We've got some music for the doc. All right, Dr. Shoemaker, do we have you on the line? You sure do, and I'm very pleased to hear your voice today. Uh, it's great to have you back. Good to hear you. Uh, heard we all, you were not well there for a while, but um, you're recovering and all is well, huh? So far, it's, uh, it has been uh, quite a ride. Well, you know, I, I know we've got a lot of things to talk about today, but later we'll maybe we'll get a chance to check in on on your health issue but i think everything's great and i know that you've been doing really well with the survivingmold.com website when we talked the other day i don't want to give the number because I, I i wasn't sure if i heard you right how many visits are you getting to that website we now are fairly regularly over three million hits per month wow uh, of course a hit is more than uh, uh more than uh, individual users but it's it's still a lot of traffic. We we, we broke the two million mark uh, early in 2014, uh, and it's it's kind of kind of exploded. We're we're hoping to add some new features to uh, you know bring 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 the message out to a few more people. Great, that sounds wonderful. You're getting that many people now. You're also training other docs on your protocol, and I know that's part of the, the newsletter, at least, that I get, um, and, and that, you know, you regularly announce new docs, but I, I was a little confused again when we talked. I believe you said you had, like, 500 docs that were using the protocol to some degree or another, and then you have others that I think you've actually certified in the protocol. Can you clarify that for me? Sure. We have three categories uh, of, of physician usage, and by physician, I need to extend that to healthcare providers because nurse practitioners and PAs and, and other other providers are counted. Uh, when they send a, a letter or a note <clears throat> with a question uh, saying that they want some help with the protocol, they have a question regarding a patient they're working with, 
we'll put that that individual's uh, name down as someone using the protocol. Uh, for people who want to use it on a regular basis and start to focus on it, uh, we then have a physician's section on the website uh, where we, we share information and bibliographies and uh, discussion of, of, of science-based questions regarding the medical aspects of, of diagnosis and treatment. Uh, that one is probably not quite as well used as what we might like. Uh, we also then have people that have started the certification process, and there's about 40 or so now that have started that process, there's a, a fairly careful test that people need to, to take to kind of establish what do they know and where, if there are any weak points where they might be. Uh, we then have essay questions that need to be completed and then an oral interview. So it's not the same as a medical board uh, exam and we don't advertise that it is, but we simply want to make sure that if someone is willing to be using the surviving mold protocols, that they're well-versed in the basic science of uh, why we use them, what they are, how to use them, uh, and then uh, hopefully uh, use their different opinions and uh, developing additional information as to how to expand treatment protocols. Uh, so it's it's been kind of fun to see that. Uh, there's a section on certified physicians on the website where you can see uh, essays that, that at least nine of the docs have put on on uh, what are the surviving old protocols so that you can see uh, kind of a different approach that one person might have compared to another, but they all are focusing on the same final goal, which is a sequential disciplined 12-step uh, protocol. Okay. Well, let's, let's get back into... We, we were last um, on the show together here in, that was 2012, almost three years ago. It was in February. And we, we were talking a little bit about, you know, water-damaged buildings and, <clears throat> excuse me, CIRS and um, how you were treating CIRS. And, and this was all before the, the NeuroQuant stuff came out, or at least that you were using it, as I understand, or maybe you had just started. Can we do a quick review of, you know, where we were then and, and kind of how things have changed between then and now, and then we'll talk more about NeuroQuant. There's a uh, almost uh, light year difference where we are now compared to where we were back in 2012, and then comparing 2012 to 2010, there's also uh, a fairly exponential change. What we knew early on and has maintained throughout this, this interesting journey is that people who are cases of illness will have distinctly unique uh, classifications of symptoms. And this is not a, a self-completed checklist, for example, but it's done by a physician or a healthcare provider in a medical history. And when we, when we do what's called cluster analysis, we can show that those with inflammatory response syndromes are distinctly different than just about anything else that, that, that might be out there uh, as far as possible sources of symptoms. The second issue is that we have developed and expanded the list of objective tests, uh, blood tests. Uh, the first one was visual contrast sensitivity way back in 1998. Since then, we've added a, 
<coughs> series of about 15 tests that have been peer-reviewed and published on differences between cases and controls and how innate immune abnormalities are crucial to looking to see, you know, who's a case and, and, and who isn't. The treatment of these patients lets us see uh, resolution of symptom excess, resolution of visual contrast deficit, and correction of these lab abnormalities. And, and for today, I'll be calling those lab tests proteomics, or the idea of proteins in the blood um, is, is kind of a newer jargon term. And the jargon has not, has not changed. Uh, it, it, it's added to, unfortunately, it's quite a burden. But since 2012, we've tried to expand the basic information of where does this illness actually come from and why do we have people that when they're to all visual cues treated successfully for this illness, why do they become ill so quickly with re-exposure? Because re-exposure will make people sicker quicker. And that has led us to the ability to sort out differential gene activity and this is where we get the term uh, genomics combined with proteomics. So when we talk about genomics, we're actually talking about genes that are transcribed. And as you might expect, there's a jargon term for that called transcriptomics. And it gets worse, believe me, <laughs> Joe, but uh, it's, it, it, it's out there. But nonetheless, when we look at the transcriptome of cases versus controls, We've been working for the last three years to develop an algorithm that will separate with one tube of blood very nicely with an accuracy over, over 92, 93%, you know, who has a CRS from water damage building versus CRS from say post Lyme or Terror or some of the others. And, and certainly very different than what control patients are. But where we're focusing our efforts in addition to expanding the proteomics and genomics, we're also looking at brain injury. The symptoms that people have had routinely, you know, 85 to 90 percent of, of patients will have executive cognitive impairment. And this has always been a concern for patients going to see a physician because they have recent memory impairment and concentration trouble and uh, difficulty with word finding and confusion and sometimes disorientation decreased assimilation of new knowledge. And a lot of docs who aren't familiar with this field will say, well, I think it's all in your head. Are you having some depression issues? Have you lost your job? You know, things bad at home? Go see a psychiatrist. And most of the people that I've seen over the years, that being over 51% think most, have been given information like this. And it turns out to be wrong, of course, because when patients are treated successfully, those executive cognitive symptoms are markedly reduced. But we never, never had MRI findings that would give specific evidence of this source of executive cognitive dysfunction. Sure, there was more scarring. Uh, we see unidentified bright objects on MRI, and 45% of cases compared to 5% of controls would have those. But that didn't separate out of cases. Uh, reliably, but then we looked at MR spectroscopy, which show elevated lactate because the blood doesn't flow normally and blood vessels 
called capillaries, the smallest bit. But that also showed distinctive abnormalities, but well, they're not specific for SDRS from water damage building things. Uh, in about 2011, 2012, thanks to the excellent work of Dr. David Ross, who's at the Virginia Institute of Neuropsychiatry, uh, he taught me what NeuroQuant can show us. NeuroQuant is a software program that was developed by Cortex in San Diego, a brilliant application of a variety of uh, software techniques to taking an image on MRI and expanding it and making a sphere out of it and all those other stuff they do that will let us analyze volumes of 11 different brain regions. And if you have a head injury and an automobile accident or concussions or post-traumatic brain syndrome, there will be uh, a symmetry of one side bigger than another. And, and you couldn't necessarily see it on regular MRI, but you could see it on NeuroQuant. And based on Dr. Ross's published work, I said, well, let's, let's see what do we find in CRS water damage building patients. And lo and behold, it looked early on as if we had something. We then looked at a case control group, and yeah, we sure do have something. And boy, did we have to go through hoops on statistics in that NeuroQuant paper that was published in July of 2014 in Neurotoxicology and Teratology. But Joe, we obviously are not done working with NeuroQuant. We have two more papers in progress. One is to have formal peer review of specific markers that not only identify people with injuries from water damage buildings, by enlargement of some areas, and this enlargement or edema is one that we see more between the cells of different areas of the brain. So that's interstitial edema. And because you don't see it on a regular MRI, but you do see it on NeuroQuant, it's called microscopic. So this uh, ability to sort out changes in volume identifies uh, the effect of abnormalities in the blood-brain barrier from inflammation that we know, and that's proteomics, that we know is coming from these patients. But now you get basically swollen areas of the brain, and, and, and there's a distinctive pattern of that for mold patients. But fascinatingly, we saw that there were reductions in volumes of particular areas of the brain called gray matter nuclei, and one of those, called the caudate nucleus, jumps off the page, showing abnormalities in, in our CRS, WBD patients or mole patients. And the best part is that with treatment over time, we can actually see correction of volume abnormalities in gray matter nuclei with these directed protocols. And Joe... Uh, we have looked, and I bet you've looked as, as carefully as, as, as anybody, there is no parallel to what we are seeing in peer-reviewed published literature. So this is obviously something that we're excited about, uh, but that excitement is tempered by the reality that this is going to be called novel. The fact that nobody else has published it doesn't mean it's wrong, but it means that when we, when we take this stuff to the dance, we're going to have our shoes shined and our hair washed. Now, I, I, that was a lot. All right, let me let me go back just a second. So you saw both increases and decreases in the volume 
on with with your patients? Let's be clear. The increases are in a selected group of structures. Okay. The decrease is only in the caudate nucleus for our mole patients, but our post-Lyme patients, their caudates are, are normal, but they drop out the putamen. Okay, okay. And then our, and our post-traumatic stress disorder have got normal putamen, normal caudate, but they drop out hippocampus. And then we start to look to see what happens if you've got two things. And the analysis gets statistically a nightmare when you start adding multiple diagnoses. Uh, but we can, in post-Lyme patients who have been then uh, successfully treated uh, with antibiotics, still with the ongoing inflammation, of course, they develop putamen atrophy, and then if they're in a water-damaged building, they can add to that with caudate atrophy as well. Now, that's, that's down the road analysis, but it's just incredible to think there's specificity of gray matter structures that so far stick out with three pretty common illnesses. Now, and I want to go back again to the, the difference between an MRI and NeuroQuant. Um, it's, it's this, you're still using an MRI as the basis, right? For, but it's just how NeuroQuant, maybe, maybe I'm not understanding, how NeuroQuant analyzes that MRI or how it, how it uses the data that you get from the MRI or is it a different type of um, imaging? It is MRI imaging. Mm -hmm. It's a sagittal view without contrast. It takes 10 minutes of MRI time. So you've got to put your head in the tube, but to develop the images that are needed to do the neuroquant analysis, uh, it, only, it only takes 10 minutes of MRI time. Uh, if, if all you do is go to an MRI machine and get a neuroquant done, the cost is $89. That's covered by insurances most of the time. And the Cortex website, and, and by the way, I have no financial involvement with Cortex, so I don't have any disclosures to make except that uh, they are they're, they're really helpful and if you call them wanting to know how to get a neuroquant done because you don't see it on their locator map and the locator map will give you most of the places in the country that are doing neuroquant uh, they, they have been over backwards to help you but neuroquant is a software program that manipulates the images derived from MRI to recreate the brain into uh, an expanded structure, taking it away from kind of funny football shape and making it essentially into a sphere so they can do the math calculations to give us accurate images for uh, representation of brain uh, areas. And now this was described in one of the I don't know. I think it was your presentation you sent me as a like a brain ruler almost, where we were you know using it to measure different. Is that is that that best way kind of to very simply describe what the program does, not necessarily what MRI does. That term brain ruler comes from David Ross. I think it's it's very accurate. It really does tell us how big things are. It doesn't tell us why they got big. It doesn't tell us how they got big, but it tells us that they're big. So when we start with a reproducibly observed 
uh, objective parameter, it doesn't tell us anything more other than now you have an indicator saying yes or no. So it doesn't really say, you know, why your left ear is is not working. It just says your left ear is not working, just to use an example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this, I want to get another term cleared. It says that this was medical or FDA cleared. Is there also another level of FDA? Is there FDA approved or is FDA cleared? Can you kind of tell listeners what the difference is? I, I, I don't. I don't know the the, the sophisticated literature uh, that FDA uses, and I would refer you to Neuroquan on that. Okay. Uh, there's there are no disclaimers that come out that that say you know, not submit for FDA approval ever on these things, as opposed to some lab tests that are research-based only. Uh, but they told me it's called FDA cleared, and so not being sophisticated in FDA jargon, I call it FDA cleared. Sure. <laughs> I can understand that. I'm having a, a tough time with the jargon myself here. Okay, so we, we've got the, the neuroquant, and, and you, you've taken this and essentially you know, compared the results to both the control group that, that aren't in water damaged buildings or have not had a history of being in water damaged buildings and then people who have been, you've looked at the differences. You're actually seeing different markers or volumes for people in or reductions in volume for people that have different types of um, exposure, whether it be, you know, Lyme disease or water damaged building or and the one that I think people find very fascinating is the post-traumatic stress um, types of, of disorders. How is that what this is more commonly used for? What was NoroQuant developed for? It wasn't developed for CIRS and water-damaged buildings. It was developed for something else. As Dr. Ross has, has focused on, traumatic brain injury was the, the main field in which NeuroQuant had its first application. Like any reliable uh, neurologic uh, measurement, people will say, well, this is a tool, let's apply it to something else. The incredible devastation of, of our servicemen uh, from PTSD has my attention. Obviously, that's, that's a politically charged issue. Some people think the illness is just psych- is psychiatric, and yet there's a very large literature on the inflammatory changes, the proteomics uh, that are found in PTSD people, and it doesn't have to be just military folks that, that, that will have PTSD, but the real issue is that we are asking a question, if PTSD has an inflammatory basis, do we see that in laboratory studies? The answer is yes. Does PTSD improve when we correct laboratory studies? Yes, to some extent. But more importantly, it is when we correct the hippocampal atrophy, and in our, our numbers of patients are small here, uh, as, as you might imagine with kind of fast-moving fields. What, what I'm telling you today is the best of what I know. Uh, next week we may have something new to, to add to that. But treatment of PTSD with protocols that will correct gray matter atrophy are very promising at this time. Fortunately, we're in discussion with Dr. Andrew Heyman, uh, who is in Middleburg, uh, Virginia. Uh, Andy has uh, come down from Michigan to run 
of the graduate program in integrative medicine at George Washington, uh, and he has uh, kind of pioneered together with folks like Dr. Russ Jaffe uh, and uh, their their work of bringing hard science to to a lot of fields. Quite frankly, have been based on anecdote in the past, but Dr. Heyman has uh, interactions with the Armed Services uh, University Medical School and we are working on an IRB proposal to study PTSD in, in detail. This is a huge area, and I'm just incredibly excited. It, it's, it's just basically the, the information that comes from CIRS has so many applications to other fields of medicine, uh, and we're, we see that in genomics as well, that it's, you know, to me, uh, kind of a uh, more of a canary in a coal mine for... Uh, there's so many illnesses. You know, let me ask you about another one, then we're going to take our halftime break. But this just, you know, I, like you, I get start thinking about all these other applications, I guess. What about with uh, traumatic brain injury for people who, like football players, who have had repeated head injury? Is I assume they're using it for that as well. <laughs> You're a smart guy. I swear to God you are. <laughs> My goodness. What we're looking at is the differences in repetitive concussive injuries uh, as opposed to significant magnitude of individual injuries. Both of those activate inflammatory response syndromes. And I had sent off a proposal to one of the docs who was involved in some of the traumatic encephalopathies of football players and I said, look, you know, here is a literature search showing you need to pay attention to this. Here is the software program that would, would help. And here's what we have seen in treatment of these patients. I sent it off to the NFL uh, Players Union. Uh, and maybe there will be a letter in my mailbox when I get home, but I haven't heard anything back. It's been a few months. But, you know, when, when you look at the poor brain, it has limited numbers of ways to respond. To injury, and the response to injury is inflammation. So, if you say, if are there inflammatory changes in the brain induced by repetitive concussive forces? The answer is yes. What happens if that inflammation is untreated? Well, it doesn't go away. Let's just look at our mole patients as a simple example. Uh, and having looked at people like this for now 17 years, it doesn't go away without treatment. It's not due to having a, a fungus sitting in your nose and, 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 and just doing nothing else. It's due to specific inflammatory issues, and the basis for that is abnormalities of gene activation. Hmm. All right, let's break for our halftime here. We're going to just thank our sponsors. We're not going to do anything else. We're going to come right back with the second half of our program with Dr. Richie Shoemaker. We're, uh, this is fascinating stuff, really enjoying the chat. We're, we're going to come back with the second half in about 90 seconds. Hang in there. Thanks to our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit their website at IAQA.org. And thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, 
who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at J-O-N-D-O-N, that's johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and C-M-M-Online.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their services or products. Okay, we're back. Second half. Dr. Richie Shoemaker, we're talking the union of genomics and neuroquant. And before I go any further, um, I also want to let people know we had some major problems with the website. It looks like people are getting in now and logging in and they're hearing on the website. I didn't want to shut it down and start again in case we would lose everybody, but the recording's going. We'll have an excellent recording after the show. People can download it later. It looks like things are coming along well, though. Cliff, let me get over to you real quick before I continue. Anything that you wanted to add or any questions you wanted to ask? No, Joe, I just have a sore hand. <laughs> Cliff's writing the blog, and uh, he'll be using his dictionary and, and uh, trying to figure out the spelling on a lot of this, too. We'll work together with the doc on that. All right, Dr. Shoemaker, we, we were talking a little bit about the treatment and then you know the, the differences in treatment between uh, different injuries and, and whether or not some of these things can be recovered. And, and you sort of answered this question for me right before we went to break, but I want to I want to expand on it a little bit. The first treatment, as I understand it, when, when you're dealing with water-damaged buildings and CIRS is to get out of the building and, or to clean it in a way that um, you know, no longer causes a problem for the people in the building. But I think I understood you to say that that alone is not going to correct the the issues that your people are having once they have this inflammatory response. Is that accurate to say? It is very accurate. It is incredibly important. So many people think that this illness is, is like an allergy. And there are allergies to mold. But what's in the, the chemical mixture inside water-damaged buildings is way, way more than, than mold. We focus on mold. We test for mold. It's the easiest at least expensive way to access some, some fairly sophisticated studies. But the real issue is that this chemical mixture does way more to genomics from things other than mold than, than anybody has really given much credence to. Uh, and when our genomics paper is published, we'll be looking at the genes 
that are abnormal in cases uh, and uh, focusing on things like mycotoxins is, uh, is, is just not, 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 not the right way to go. You've got to pass that hurdle, but that's only part of the problem. So that's why removal from exposure is, is necessary for improvement, but is not sufficient for improvement. Well, you know, that's a question I had emailed to me. Um, before the show, they, they, when they knew you were coming on, it was, you know, uh, how do these, uh, let me think, uh, let me go back to an earlier show, not even the last one we did, one we did probably six years ago now, we were talking about that chemical soup that people are exposed to when they're in a water-damaged building. Are, are we getting any closer to understanding what within that soup is causing these issues or what combination of things within that soup is causing these issues? We are. The computer that uh, Dr. Jimmy Ryan uh, is using for analysis is unfortunately too small. It only has terabyte capability. We're looking to expand to pentabyte capability to give us results in nanoseconds. But if you think about the next generation DNA sequencing, we're looking at about 800 different variables and 22,000 genes, but we're looking at about 30 million sequences that are 125 to 150 base pairs long. The amount of data mining that goes on in, in this is just gigantic. So when I think of terabyte you know, I always think of pterodactyls, but that's just me. You know, I guess I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> but the issue is that in order to answer the questions that, that you and I are going to come up with pretty quickly, uh, we, we almost are a, a slave to some of the technology that let uh, the researchers identify the human genome in, in the first place. We know that the biggest mechanism that's involved in all of this illness comes from what used to be called junk DNA. Uh, and Joe, you know, when, if you read about some of the initial stuff looking at, at genes that were identified, they're about 22,000, 25,000, somewhere in there. There were protein coders, so that this gene coded for this protein and this gene coded for that protein. But that was only 2% of the total DNA. And then people said, well, my God, the rest of it, we don't know what it means. And and somebody called it junk DNA. Well, I got news for you. In that junk DNA, over half of it has been identified to not be junk. And the, the jargon term for Cliff is long non-coding RNA. This is a field that has an incredible mushrooming number of papers uh, that we're starting to see come out. These DNA strands are distinct from, from the DNA that uh, is sitting in, inside uh, the chromosome. And they're sitting in non-membrane areas of the nucleus in terms like speckles and paraspeckles and cahale bodies and all these other weird names that you're going to be hearing of in, in the future. They have got ribonuclear protein and some nuclear protein and some nucleotides all wrapped up one with another and they regulate differential gene activation. You've heard the term epigenetics and epigenomics. 
this is regulation of DNA from outside DNA, and where it's happening, uh, based on the best knowledge I have as of today, tomorrow may be different, is primarily happening from these long non-coding RNAs. And they are distinctly different in cases compared to controls. Our first genomic paper is on Ciguatera. That should be out any day now. But in this one, we see this, this uh, nuclear-enriched adenine transcript, or NEAT, and there's one, two, three of them. So NEAT1 goes up like crazy in, in our mold patients. And what NEAT1 is doing is preventing normal transcription of DNA from being successful. So you get gene suppression, but conversely, other genes are being activated. And then when you step in with the genome active therapies that we're working on now, we can watch NEAT1 levels go back to normal, watch regulation of DNA go back to normal, watch the abnormalities in genomics go back to normal, watch the patient go back to normal. It's just like, whoa. And all this time, we're blaming mycotoxins from what was a differential gene activation therapy all treatment need all along. And, but we still don't know what caused that differential gene activation. There are clear indications that some of the genes, primarily with Dectin-1 and Dectin-2, they're responding to particular beta-glucans, those do respond to proteomic uh, in, in interventions as opposed to genomic interventions so that the things that we use to fix NEAT1 are already fixed by the protocols that we've got in place. I know you've asked about, about treatment. Those have been published and peer-reviewed as well. But to say we don't know what goes wrong is, is, is polite. We don't know half of what all the rest of the problem is. If only half of the junk DNA has been identified, what's the other half doing? Yeah, yeah. It's just like... We, we see the tip of the iceberg. Can you imagine? We didn't even see the tip of the iceberg 10 years ago. We saw the, <laughs> I don't even know what we saw. Uh, and there's still a whole bunch of iceberg to be discovered. Now, when we talk about this uh, protogenomic intervention, give us an example, of, you know, the, a concrete example of what that is so people can, you know, feel it. Is it a drug? Is it a, you know, a, an activity? What, what exactly are we doing there? In the title for this show of the union of, of neuroquantum and genomics, what we use as an example here is a person coming for evaluation of, in June of 2012, and the uh, proteomics are very abnormal, the genomics are very abnormal, and neuroquant shows significant uh, microscopic interstitial edema in four marine parenchyma, cortical gray, Paladin, uh, as well as loss of caudate. With sequential interventions by December of 2012, that person has significant improvement in symptoms, correction of C4A, TGF-beta-1, VEGF, MMP9, uh, ADH, and osmolality, uh, correction of anti-gliadin antibody positivity, and correction of 880 of 1,700 possible genes that showed inflammatory responses. There's a couple we didn't fix, but the final pathway 
and this was this was just for, for, for one month, was to use a drug called vasoactive intestinal polypeptide, or VIP. VIP is the neural regulatory peptide. Uh, I, I think I sent you the paper, Joe, uh, on, on use of VIP that was published and peer-reviewed in March of 2013. That's the one that shows the protocol, but it also shows the proteomic abnormalities or lab abnormalities of 1,829 adults compared to about 500 controls. So that with use of VIP, we fix the proteomics, but what we should see in this lady uh, is we fix the genomics as well. And the VIP did both, or was there another? No, it is sequential protocols. Uh, she needed removal from exposure. Okay. Then she needed then she needed cholestyramine, and we kept on for a while okay. until visual contrast was normal. Then we had correction of ADH and osmolality. She did have to go on a no gluten diet, uh, and then we were ready for VIP. It was basically three four months into it, and that was all it needed. Hmm. And and. Five years from now, there may be three more steps that you're, you're – is that accurate to say? Uh, how about five weeks from now? <laughs> okay. Yeah. That, uh, as I get older, I, really, I I lose track of how quick things are changing. I mean, I was in shock when I saw the last time you were here was three years ago. but And how much has happened since then is amazing. Um, so how – in what other ways has the information over the last – three years changed how you treat these patients? The most important issue is that it used to be that I thought that fixing symptoms was important. Oh yeah, we like to have people feel better. Sure, that's important. But more importantly, we want to protect them from injury of ongoing proteomic abnormalities. Before I knew about C4A, I had no idea how that contributed to bleeding. I think about those little kids that coughed up blood back in Cleveland, and I, I sure wish that people had measured uh, some of the proteomics so they wouldn't have been argued against by saying smoking and all that. Uh, and that's, that's an argument for another day. But the issue is that if you don't treat the proteomics, uh, you're not going to fix the patient. Similarly, TGF-beta-1, golly day, it turns on countless changes in cell types. So when you see restrictive lung disease. It gets called asthma a lot in the water damage building field. It drives me nuts. And usually is TGF-beta-1 causing changes of cell type. Nice, delicate, long, soft, columnar cells being turned into thick, stiff, tough fibroblasts that just don't work right. But this, it's called epithelial to mesenchymal transformation. And I'll say that fast so Cliff will really have to Yeah, it. really. <laughs> Let's try that again. Yeah. <laughs> EMT, that's not the emergency medical technician either. But this whole issue is that if you don't fix TGF-beta-1, you're not going to fix the respiratory issues. And all this focus on respiratory issues over the years, people looked about wheezing and they said it was asthma. And nobody talked about TGF-beta-1 in large part because it wasn't until our group demanded uh, and begged and whatever we could to get a commercial assay for TGF-beta-1. Yeah, we were the first. We sure were. And the field has just exploded since then. But then TGF-81 turns on so many different genes. And the pathways associated with TGF-81 activation go through everywhere. It's just unbelievable. So you got to fix those. 
to add to the different approach to treatment, if we show caudate atrophy, that person is going to be on VIP. Even though it's this very safe drug, we have to monitor carefully, and there's specific criteria that you darn well better pay attention to before starting VIP. We publish those, and some docs are acting like gunslingers, doing things that I don't think are right, so we've got to be careful here. Hmm. But VIP will correct gray matter atrophy uh, is what we've seen to date. Numbers are small, but we are getting ready to publish our paper. It probably won't be till spring, looking at the before and after uh, in a number of, of, of mold patients with CIRS and abnormalities of genomics and then with the Iroquois abnormalities as well. Where this goes down the road, you're right, three new therapies next week, sometime after, sometime after. One of the fascinating thoughts here is that we are looking at 45% of, of patients at the bedside who have a resting tremor that almost looks Parkinsonian. 45%, I mean, that's a huge number, but they don't have Parkinson's disease. And yet the neurons that are dropping out of the caudate are all dopaminergic. They all are carrying dopamine, the same neurotransmitter we try to drive up uh, in the Cisantia nigra in true Parkinson's patients. Hmm. And could there be a role for Parkinson's patients to help, or Parkinson's drugs, to help correct caudate? Good, good question. Are some things that are being done hurting caudate? You know, you're darn right on that, too. Interesting. Cliff, do you have anything? I know we're getting a little short, and I want to make sure you get any questions or comments. No, I'm just writing, Joe. Okay, keep going. We've got a lot to do here. We'll, to, <laughs> we'll be sending you One some. One thing uh, I, I, I wanted just to add to this whole thing. Please. Because these docs who are certified uh, on, on the website are collecting data, we functionally have taken, you know, a, a small practice in Pokemon, Maryland, and now expanded that to an international multi-site practice. The data collection that we're doing, the use of sophisticated markers that, that we're working with, uh, has, has really uh, exploded. And by sharing this information, these tools, with docs that are actually seeing patients and actually treating patients, what we're doing is taking this field out of the realm of people with one degree or another who have no experience, but are opining. We're, we're taking the, you know, the, the, the credibility of some uh, thoughts that, are, that come from folks with no experience in treatment of this issue uh, and throwing it where it belongs, which is the, the trash can. But for my point for you, with your teaching and your training, we now are faced with the issue, if we can define parameters of patients sickened by water-damaged buildings, what will that mean for cleaning and remediation? What standards do we now need to bring to bear for uh, contractors? Do we say that there are two levels of cleaning that have to be done? One is for a person that does not have genomic abnormalities and another is for someone that does. Mm -hmm. Do we have one level of cleaning for someone with caudate atrophy versus someone that doesn't? You know, that brings another question 
to, to my mind, and that is, do you have any patients that are, are former water damage restoration or mold remediation? I, I mean, maybe you can't say, I don't know, but do you ever see people from those industries coming into your practice or to your network's practices? Usually quietly through the back door. Okay. But, but yes, absolutely. As soon as you announce that you have an illness related to water damage buildings and brain problems, uh, if you're an interior environment contractor, how many contracts are you going to get? If someone says that you've got cognitive issues due to your work, right. it's, it's, it's a tough one. <clears throat> it if, is. But... If all you did for your contractors was have them get some basic inexpensive screens, you would then, I think, be doing a huge favor. Because the, the likelihood that you're going to find 25% of your contractors, 25% of, of your people who are in water damage buildings, having treatable abnormalities of an immune response, to me, is about 100%. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, I have one more that, that got sent in by a listener when he, when he heard you were coming on. And that was to, to clarify, uh, maybe to discuss a little bit about the, the multiple chemical sensitivity and how that plays into the, the issue we're discussing here today, if it does. I've been asked that question a number of times, and I'm going to use the same answer. Uh, there was a Supreme Court justice who said that he knew pornography when he saw it, but he couldn't give a real definition of it. Mm -hmm. I know chemical sensitivity when I see it, and yet I can't find anyone to agree of what the actual case definition of MCS is. I don't know anybody that has identified the physiology, but I will tell you that the neurotransmitter and the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the hypothalamus that sums all of the olfactory neuron inputs is VIP. And when you use high-dose VIP, chemical sensitivity that had been disabling uh, has a chance of getting better. There was a, a very prominent MCS person involved in, in litigation in Oregon who moved down to... Uh, Arizona, who had a very lucrative job and was disabled, unable to work, and so he used 28 doses of VIP a day and went back to work. Hmm. Made a lot of money. Wow. But it's really the issue is that do we know what the genomics of chemical sensitivity is? We don't yet, but we have got 4,000 samples uh, of blood that will let us answer those questions in the freezer. It's a matter of getting the funding that we need. It's a matter of getting the time. And it's a matter of focusing on, you know, what kind of definition can be translated into genomic abnormalities, and then we show genomic correction. Hmm. All right. Look, we're, we're really kind of coming up toward the end here, and I want to make sure that you get the chance to add anything that, you know, you want to make sure we get into this show, and then I'd like to get you back to talk a little bit more about that, that whole other topic of remediation of these environments, you know, once once we've had a water damage or, or a mold situation. What else do you want to add on this topic before we go? You know, you, you made a very insightful comment about three years, and boy, time's going by. It has been a long time since I talked to you. But I have to tell you that in January of 2013, uh, when a very expert a uh, physician said, you know, are your affairs in order? If not, get them in order uh, because your, your life expectancy is less than six months. It, it gives you kind of an urgency 
uh, and thanks to VIP and some other protocols, I'm, I'm you know, out in the woods and uh, chainsawing and hauling and doing what I want to do. But the the issue is, you know, when when I I've been given a second chance, uh, I've been given a chance to look at things, uh, and it's 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 a gift that may not be there tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So that focusing on what's important for today, uh, love of family, love of profession, uh, you know, caring for coworkers and all that. It, it gets a little different category when you walk around with a sword of Damocles hanging over your head. But we all have that sword. And so when we uh, have a chance to answer a question of life that's important, and to me it's the genomics and, and all this inflammatory stuff, uh, let's not waste time. Let's not spend time arguing and, and worrying about who's to blame. Let's worry about who's to fix. I hear you. Now, if you had, you know, all the money you wanted and, uh, and all the um, all the all the support that you wanted where would you focus your effort you know what what other things would you be doing that you're not doing now I would be owning that pentabyte uh, computer and I'd be analyzing gene sequences in people for whom I had proteomics and I would be having my multi-site uh, contributors sending specimens so that we can correlate what others have noticed in terms of treatment with what I might think might be a wacko kind of idea. But the data mining of genes and the data mining of sources of information from proteomics is there. It's a matter of us having the money and the time to find it. And are there not universities or research foundations? I'm sure you've tried this. I'm just wondering, you know, is there no one out there that can help with that problem? Or you? When you pick up a, a journal like, like Genomics, most of the money, and there's a huge amount of money uh, going into this field, is going into researchers that are focused on one thing, and that's cancer. Mm. There's some work on, on genomics of cardiovascular diseases, but nobody is putting any money into the proteomics and pathway analyses that go into the genomics of chronic inflammatory diseases. I think that's going to change tomorrow, uh, but quite frankly, uh, in this situation, uh, we need to remember that NIH does not stand for National Institute of Health. It stands for not invented here. <laughs> so, you know, the idea of getting someone else to take your work uh, it has, has a lot of implications. So fortunately, with folks like Dr. Heyman bringing George Washington on board, uh, we, only need, we only need one, but we need one good one, and we've got one good one. Great. Well, that does help me understand a little better because you know when you mention cancer and and heart disease, there's only so much money. Let's you know, let's face it, um, and it does. Whether it's the right thing or not, it does make sense that there is a big focus on those two issues. Obviously, they cause a lot of death and 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 a lot of agony for people. So that does help me understand a little better. Cliff, before we wrap it up, anything you want to add or any final questions you have? The one thing that I got, Doctor, was that, you know, in messing with DNA, it, it just seems a little scary to me. Scary to me, too. Yeah. 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 But are you really, I guess that's another question then. You're not really, um, at this point anyway, you're not, like, um, 
inserting a DNA. You know, you're not you're not actually taking you know stem cells and and trying to uh, insert DNA that somebody doesn't have or that is damaged. Or is that you know is that even something you're thinking about? No, we're, we're, none of that. In in 2007, I gave a talk at the IAQA meetings, and Harriet Amman was there, and we were talking about chemical sensitivity. Uh, that somebody was talking about the tilt idea and all that. And I said, there's a lot of promise for, for, for VIP. And, and, and Dr. Aman just, just said very quietly in her, in her very elegant way, you'll need to show safety and you need to show durability. Well, that was the reason for the 2013 paper where we showed safety and durability over 18 months. Now that we've been using VIP for even more time than that, we're not seeing three-headed monsters. We're not seeing changes in fetal loss. We're not seeing, you know, unexplained development of tumors in, in the gut and all that. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing is a diffuse reset button that changes inflammatory gene dysregulation, and we're restoring regulation back to uh, human physiology. I get tired of too many regulations from government but I'm too tired as well of lack of regulation of DNA function. Well, yeah, but I, I mean, you could also see how this could get out of hand in the wrong hands. If you, you know, and you've even mentioned here today that some docs are, you know. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. And that's that's the chance you, you get. That's why what we're trying to do is publish, you know, in in good high level journals, solid methods that are, you know, state-of-the-art, that withstands anybody's peer review, and then making the requirement that any other use or research is done with the same level of integrity. There's a big problem with lack of integrity in this field, I'll tell you what. Well, and then let's, let's also mention the name of that paper. You did send it to me, and I have the, the abstract here in front of me. Vasoactive Intestinal Polypeptide VIP Corrects Chronic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, CIRS, Acquired Following Exposure to Water Damaged Buildings. And um, I've got a copy of that. If it's okay, I can put it up on the website. That would be great. It's, it's a free download from the Surviving Mold website. And just to let your readers know, there is a ton of information. There's literally a million pages of documents available for free download on the Surviving Mold website. If you haven't looked at it and haven't spent some time join 3 million others per month, and, and you'll see why it's going to be a popular place to, uh, to think and learn and share. You know, that's a good point. I'm glad you bring that up. And then, what, can you just real quick, I, I know you're busy, and I, I don't want to hold you too long. Do you have just a minute? Sure. What is VIP? I mean, it's a polypeptide. What exactly is that? Uh, it's a hormone. It is a hormone treatment. It's, okay. it's a naturally occurring hormone. Uh, it's one that's made... Uh, throughout the body, it was first identified in lung, first researched in careful uh, approaches from GI tract because it's a lot easier to get guts than it is lungs. Uh, but it's been there's a very substantial literature on how this is an immune modulator, an immune stabilizer. You know, I had no idea when we started that VIP would fix vitamin D3 problems. I had no idea it was going to fix aromatase and uh, testosterone problems. You know, so many people are saying, well, I got low T, and they're putting drugs on that suppress their T further, and they say, well, I need more of that drug. But the real issue is that in these hormone problems, whether it's 
progesterone or testosterone or ACTH, there's a huge impact of VIP as a modulator of not just immune functions but hormone function. Uh, it affects T regulatory cells. It fixes uh, inflammatory issues. Uh, the side effect we've seen, we've got over 5,000 people that have taken VIP or have reported to me to be taking VIP, and we have less than 10 that have had side effects requiring dropping out of the, of the use of the drug. Hmm. And we follow lipase, which is the pancreatic enzyme, and everybody, heaven forbid, there should be a problem with, with lipase. If it is, does go up, you got to stop the drug. There are very strict criteria that need to be uh, put into place before using VIP because if you give it to people willy-nilly before they've had the inflammatory protocol that, that we published and peer-reviewed uh, put in place, and this has been validated in, in, our, in our docs practices as well, VIP doesn't work. Hmm. And the most common reason VIP doesn't work is ongoing exposure to water-damaged buildings. And there's protocols that, that we put in place to how to identify uh, whether you're exposed to water damage building or not. And, it, Joe, it, it's so simple to give a person a dose of VIP, you measure TGF beta 1, give them a dose of VIP, and come back 15 minutes later and draw VIP, correction, draw TGF beta 1 again. If that goes up 3,000 micrograms per mil, you've got exposure to water damage building and don't know it. Hmm. Interesting. So, I mean, it, it's one thing for the docs. Uh, if you've got biofilm-forming organisms in your nose and you don't treat it properly, VIP is not going to work. And some docs are saying, "Well, gee, I, I, I know I don't look in the nose for anything." Well, you're missing something. Hmm. It's it's education. And you're not saying that you know. I'm glad you bring that up, not because I don't think you're saying that the current treatments for asthma or for you know sinus infections, etc., are are all wrong. Um, and that, but then in some cases, that's just part of the issue. Is right. That... We know full well that if you have a clot in your leg, there are protocols that are put in place to help dissolve the clot. We know that if you have heart failure, there are protocols that have been evaluated and put into place that work. And if you don't do that, you're doing the wrong thing. It's the same thing with CIRS. There's a protocol to diagnose the condition. You've got to have symptoms the same as what we see in published patients, labs the same as what's present in published patients. You're going to have the same response to project treatment protocols in published patients. But if you start getting creative and saying, well, I don't want to do visual contrast and hallucinogenic made me constipated, you're not doing the protocol. It's like I'm not going to use heparin to dissolve a blood clot. Well, if you don't use heparin to dissolve a blood clot, you can kill somebody. Yeah, there's no sense doing anything else, right? In <laughs> CRS, you just postpone the misery of their life, make them spend money on things that don't have a prayer of working, and then you, you charge them thousands of dollars and say, you know, have a nice life. What else is VIP used for? It is one of the compounds that is in a variety of clinical research settings. Uh, it is a designated orphan drug from the FDA, and I told you I'm not an FDA expert. Right. But it's a drug that is allowed to be compounded. Uh, there was a while that Biogen IDEC had uh, licensed uh, it from Backham and Switzerland to use for trials of pulmonary hypertension. It's an absolute gorgeous drug for pulmonary hypertension. 
It is so much safer and so much less expensive than anything else that's out there for that condition. Uh, I'm not sure it'll be out in clinical trials before long. So it's not a very expensive uh, drug either? No. Okay. Interesting. And the, as far as the, the treatment goes, I mean, you've got a specific, the first thing is get out of that water damaged environment the, and then um, follow the treatment from there. And this may or may not, does it, VIP isn't always a part of the treatment? Oh, no, we don't, we don't need VIP except it's the last step. That's the last part, right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, VIP, is, I call it the coat of paint. You know, if we think about inflammation as, as being a, a building on fire, uh, no one would dream about painting a building that's still on fire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You put out the fire with the inflammatory protocols that, that we use, and then and only then do you rebuild the building, and then finally you paint it. And but I, without the paint, the building's not done. It also depends on how badly damaged the building was on how much repair you have to do. That's why it takes six months of VIP to fix the caudate nucleus. Honestly, Joe, seeing correction in the, in the first patient was just absolutely stunning. It's like, my God, this has got to be a mistake. This is <laughs> it can't be true. No one's ever done this. And then you find five more and you go, oh, it's not a mistake. How many hormones are there out there? I mean, there's, you know, this is one hormone we're talking or one one hormone-based um, drug out there. What? How many are? How many are we looking at? Are there thousands? I think it's a fair question to say how many hundred hormones are there. Okay. People going to change their their definition. Uh, just just look at the word endocrine, for example. You think about hormones; they're all part of the endocrine system, right? Okay. We, we, we all we all heard that. We all know that. And yet, let's look at cytokines just for a minute. Cytokines will have effect on the cells that made them. That's called an autocrine function. They have effects on cells nearby. That's called a paracrine function. And they have effects on cells distant. That's an endocrine function. Are you telling me the word endocrine refers to hormones and cytokines alike? Well, actually, the language just isn't very good. And that's right. It does apply to, to both of those. Hmm. So how do you make the distinction between a compound like TGF-beta-1 that has the direct effects of itself and genomic effects that's a cytokine from cortisol, which is a hormone that has direct effects of its own that has genomic effects as well? We're going to need a whole new structure for the way we discuss everything now with the way people have defined things over the years with the best level of science that they have precisely and science moves forward or moves sideways or backwards depending on how you look at it but science moves it doesn't stay the same so if 98 percent of the dna was junk dna 12 years ago what are we going to say about the other half of long coding rnas you know coming up will that have effects on longevity will it have effects on cancer will have effects on, on inflammation, I think we'll find the answer is yes. Absolutely. We had uh, Dr. James Scott on years ago now, and he was talking about, you know, microbiology and, and the, the, the new frontier with, with all the, you know, all the things we're learning from, from genetics and, and, and breaking down the DNA of all these different organisms and that, you know, there may be 26 or 30 different uh, kingdoms of, of, of life out there and not just five. So it's almost as if we've got to um, change the way we, we talk about these things. But 
I don't know where you start. So it's a good thing we have people like you that understand these things a, little, a lot better than me, and uh, <laughs> we can figure out a way to to get to make it a little simpler. I don't know. It's just really hard. You know, you use a lot of words and terms that I try my best to keep up with, but it's really hard to make it a little more simple because I thought we were making it simpler by saying it was a, a type of hormone. But then when you go into the details of, uh, of what is a hormone, I don't know that it made it any simpler for me, but I'll keep trying, Doc. <laughs> Suzanne Summers has a new book, and it will feature some of my stuff in, in, in one of her chapters. And she was laughing at me and just saying, can't you spell out any words? Do you have to use acronyms? <laughs> Can't you speak English? Do you have to speak in jargon? You know, can you make it simple? And those are those are good questions. And uh, it'll be be folks like you that that help bring uh, elegant simplicity to what looks complicated. It's tough though sometimes because when you try and make it simpler, you, you you're really not giving it its full um, you know its full due. I guess it's just. Yeah. Very difficult. But thanks so much for joining us again. We really appreciate having you on, and I look forward to following your newsletter and uh, keeping up with uh, you know, your, your continuing uh, research and then getting you back on the show down the road here. That's good. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. It was good to say hello to you and Cliff again. My pleasure. Cliff, anything you... I missed you... the Z-Man. What happened to the... Or the who was the... Dr. Dieter. 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 <laughs> Dr. Dieter. He's playing tennis on Fridays now. <laughs> okay. we'll All get... right. You take care. All right. Thank you, Rich. Right. Much Bye, appreciated. Man. Take care. All right. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to this week's guest, Dr. Richie Shoemaker. Of course, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Cliff, you got writer's cramp. I do. going to be interesting. Um, you're going to have to run... Uh, there's going to be a lot of editing to do, I'm sure, but uh, I'm sure we're going to have a very fascinating blog. We'll send that out midweek next week. Um, next week, we've got another great guest. Dr. Richard Corsi will be joining us, and one of his uh, one of his students, I don't have the name in front of me now, um, one of the Ph.D. doctoral candidates at the University of Texas. We're going to talk a little bit about some of his research work and, and how we can continue helping to try and bring you know research to practice. And and um, we, we really enjoy those kind of shows. So this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much again to our guests, to, our, to my co-host, to Frank for uh, handling the controls here. Of course, to our growing group of loyal listeners. We'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio. Awesome. Everything on your life.